we'll just we'll just roll right into it. We got Damian Hall. It was Serendipity Guru Nation that we reached out to. Um, somebody posted, and sorry, I'm not I'm like not prepared because this was on the whim, and Damian yeah. said yes. Like I had, I was expecting like eighty percent no, not today, but it worked out. I actually had a patient that didn't show up for a visit, so I stayed home longer. Um, and and Damien, you know, I read this LinkedIn post. They said, hey, you know, Damien really showed me what it takes to get in. Black Pharma, we're going to get into all that. And I looked into it. I'm like, yeah, I actually know this guy. I've been talking to him. We know the same people. We know Dr. Hazen. He got his start at Seagull Institute in Florida, which when I was building my site, South Coast Clinical Trials, back in the early 2000s, was like the model for CNS sites. Damien started out as a medic. Like, thank you so much, Damien, for coming up. Yeah, thank you, as you mentioned. But, you know, this is Clinical Research 101, right? You know, you always have to pivot, right? <laughs> always. And we, by the way, look, I promised Viva, sponsor, uh, this show is sponsored by Viva. Thank you so much, Viva. Have you ever worked with Viva, Damien? I have. I actually, I have worked with Viva. Ah, so, what do you yeah. think? Put you on the spot here. You could say you bad if you don't like I it. I think I, you know what? I think that Viva is a fantastic system because it's it can serve multiple purposes. I know that most people know it from like, you know, ETMF, but I know that they're also getting into the CTMS space, which I think it's kind of honestly long overdue. And I, you know, and I, I like it because, you know, when I've used it, um, it's it's a really good tool because like things when you when people are uploading documents if the document isn't uploaded right or the naming convention isn't right it will, will reject it and it you know you can set it up to where it's really user friendly um so i i you know i'm a very uh, you know pro pro viva that's awesome yeah they've been i mean that's where they earn their revenues from sp uh, sponsors and CROs for sites they're giving out ereg for free to sites sites.viva.com if anyone's out there wants to start a site or has a site you can just get your own eisf for free from viva they're playing the long game they know that all those tools you mentioned earlier damien that cras and sponsors use they know that they're gonna do better long term if they could get more sites to adopt the front end of it by empowering sites helping sites do their jobs better as far as managing eisf we have ours at my site yuma clinical trials I'm hiring a new staff member Monday. She's going to be trained. One of the first things is how to manage upload files on the ESF. And what you were saying, you just check a box on certain things and it will passively move over to the sponsor's TMF. So no more monitoring, needing to ask sites to remind them about things. So thank you, Viva, sites.viva.com. Damien's a CRA. He knows all about asking sites for things. So yeah, well, so that was one of the other things. So... I am um, now in the management side of things. So using Viva and things like clue points. And so it actually leads me to a quick question, you know, because obviously, you know, you have been, you know, among the forefront in addition to clinical trials, but really helping people get into the industry, right? Do you foresee, you know, Viva's kind of progression as a result of the industry progression where look, we, you know, from a, from a CRA perspective, there was a point in time where CRAs, you know, would go out to the sites, pull paper and, you know, and you file one, you send one to data management, you keep one in the source. Mm -hmm. And then we went to the whole eCRF thing, right? And I yep. think, you know, for good, bad or indifferent, I think that what 
COVID kind of showed was that you might not really need as many monitoring visits as thought on site. So do you think that, you know, with some of Viva's expansion that it's to really cater to mm. assisting the, the monitors in the remote, you know, and, you know, CRAs, sponsors, and most importantly, sites in the remote space, because it can be kind of the bridge. Yes. So the short answer is yes. The long answer is, you know, I think this is like a parallel to patient centricity. So in patient centricity, the whole idea is let's give the patient the option. Do they want to come into the site today? Do they want, do they have to, can they do it from home? I think the same thing we're empowering sites. So site centricity. So does the CRA have to come do this visit in person today or can she do remotely? And it just happened last week. We use eSource and eReg, eSource powered by Creo. Viva doesn't do eSource yet, but there's rumors out there, people are talking, but eReg. E so our CRA asked, hey, do you mind if I just do a remote visit? And this was convenient for her in this case, but it was also convenient for us. We say, yeah, we prefer, we always prefer our CRAs. They don't bug us. They do it from home. They'll come in when they have to, when they have to do IP accountability, when they have to give us a pep talk, when they want to meet face-to-face, because -face, FaceTime still matters, but it doesn't have to be every four to six weeks anymore. So yes, the answer is yes. I see. And, you know, for me, one of the questions I've always wanted to ask you is, what was it about or what is it about our industry that you decided to want to do something that is much bigger than you? Because as you know, getting an industry is tough. Yeah. And, you know, as it relates to the role I have at Black Pharma, which, by the way, is a UK based organization to help people uh, get into industry. And so myself along with, I believe it was uh, Alexandra um, Goolsby who reached out to you, who, who had posted that. And um, I there have another, another uh, mentee. And for her, for her being Alexandra, she's looking to get into the pharmacovigilance regulatory space, which I think and realizing that it's even harder to get into that than it is the CRA space because it's... Sure something where it requires some experience, but she is willing to learn. I mean, um, I, by the way, if you have not purchased uh, Dan's books or uh, listened to his podcast, I highly suggest you do. Uh, thank you, know, you man. Great. It is, a, it is a great window into clinical research and also just the good in the industry, because I mean, listen, you know, with uh, with Elizabeth Holmes and and things like that. You know, <laughs> pharma gets a you know the industry gets a you know a black eye. But it is you know there are people like Dan out here that are really you know trying to uh, help people you know have a a fantastic career and a uh, fantastic profession. We're trying to thank you, Damien, and shout out to Alexandria. I mean, I knew that's the person who set this up. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for setting this up. You don't even realize it, but you did because this morning you tagged me and Damien in the same post. And this is someone that's been showing up on my radar lately, just providing value to other people. I see you guys out there. I'm on LinkedIn a lot. Um, so I see like it's providing value. There's there's many like this in the industry that are reaching out. For me, it started out not altruistic at all, Damien. 
I would love to say it did. It started out, I was creating content for patients. I wanted patients to come to my site. And I read this book by Gary Vaynerchuk called Crush It, where he said, you know, if you make video about who you're trying to target, they're going to come. So I made videos like, what's a consent form? What is an IRB? And no patients were watching. It was just other researchers. And they were asking me things like, hey, I just got hired. I don't know what to do. Or sometimes they would say, I want to work as a CRA. So then I pivoted my content within six months. And ever since then, it's been for the industry. But it started out like selfishly, man. I was trying to get patience for my for my site. But I pivoted. Nice. And I mean, you know, actually, a really quick story. Back, I think, in the mid-2000s, I think I reached out to you because um, it was this interesting time in the industry where um, companies were not really hiring and you actually took the time to review my CV and you were like, wait, dude, you have a lot of oncology experience. Like, take this out, do this, you know, expand on this, um, you know, shorten that. And, um, and, it, and it helped, you know. Um, it was actually, uh, it, it led me to getting an opportunity at Shire before we were acquired wow. by Wow. Yeah. Wow. And um, so, you know, thank you for that. And no problem, man. I didn't realize that with Shire, with the whole Vifans blockbuster, then Takeda acquired them. And then that, that paved the way for Travis Mickle, the lead scientist there with Chem Farm. Yep. And now they're going through stuff. This stuff is just cycles, man. And now you're helping others get in the industry. I love this. Well, you know, for, for me, um, you know, the a side note is I have an interesting background. You know, for me, I'm originally from Detroit. And uh, from from a place um, eight mile in Wyoming, if you're if you're if you're familiar, you you know. And um, I was one of the more fortunate ones to come from a you know from a two parent home. And my dad, who was in the army, he was in the army at a time when obviously the country, you know, it was what it was, right? Service country couldn't even get a job. He was a medic in the 101st Airborne Division. Mm couldn't get a job in the hospitals because, you know, just like I said, just the times, even in a place like Detroit. So, uh, you know, he worked, you know, for the city, had odd jobs, and then he became a truck driver. And that job relocated us to a town uh, in Ohio, which was a suburb of Cleveland, where we dealt with like real racism, not the stuff where people just say stuff. And I mean, you know, we had things happen like uh, my sister and I, when we'd walk to the bus stop, people, adults, would make it a point in their morning to take raw pieces of meat and toss it at my sister and I, and um, just a whole bunch of horrible things. And when when was this? Huh? When was this? Oh, this was the uh, early '80s. Wow. Yeah, and so where where I'm going with this was that, you know, when you're young, you don't understand like sacrifice and being put in a position to, you know, pivot, you know, a word we use a lot in industry. And so, you know, I joined the Navy, got out, um, and actually was, was looking to go to PA school in Miami, ran into a friend of mine who was like, hey, this company, Siegel Institute, is looking for study coordinators. I'm like, what's that? He was like, wait, you Eagle, know how- this is how we get into Siegel. Yeah, awesome. so- 
Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, wait, wait. So Navy. So how'd you end up from Ohio to Miami? You were because of the Navy? Well, no. So, um, so what happened was, uh, I actually, so after I got out of the Navy, um, we, I worked, uh, for the university of Michigan for a little bit, and then I got a job working for Orlando regional medical center as an advanced oh. technician. And because of my experience drawing blood, doing, you know, EKGs, chest tubes, all of the stuff, um, we were in Orlando. And what a lot of people don't know is, I think now it's called the physician associate profession, but it used to be called physician's assistants. Navy Corman founded the profession of PAs. Really? Yeah. So if you ask any PA, they have to learn about Eugene Steed, who was a was a physician at Duke University and used Navy Corman as his first assist in surgery. And then just through time and, you know, education progression, the profession was born. So um, at the time, Miami-Dade College, you know, they had a PA program and I was down there and, um, you know, obviously needed a job <laughs> and uh, just happened to be in a footlocker down in um, what do you call it? I think it's Biscayne Bay, I think it is. Okay. Or Bayside, Bayside, sorry. And you ever you ever see somebody and you know you know them from somewhere, but you just don't know? So anyway. Yeah, it happened to me on LinkedIn with you today. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so long story short, so me and this guy were looking at each other and we know we knew each other. And come to find out, you know, we were both stationed in Hawaii and, you know, and I played, you know, I played basketball and and he played basketball. And so anyway, he was the one who said, listen, you know, uh, there's this company in Florida that, you know, they need study coordinators. Um, and so I uh, was able to, to get a job there. And, you know, it was, you know, Siegel Institute is a fantastic place. I mean, I have so much love for, for Bonnie. And, and um, what year was this when you started? Like when you started? Oh, like 2004. Okay, so you started right around the same time I did, more or less. Um, yeah, and um, you know, was able to you know, really, <laughs> uh, do you know do some you know some amazing things, and I think that um, for me, I think the successes that I've I've had, you know, whether it be you know a CRA or a site uh, study manager or whatever has been because of that experience at Siegel Institute. Because when you understand the site dynamic, I think as a CRA one sites kind of welcome it but when you get into the clinical trial management part it also helps when you have to have discussions with the site because you you know the dynamic versus coming in and you know kind of trying to you know cause whole left side paralysis because you know they're not entering data because as you you know when you're a monitor you know you realize it just as you're leaving and you've left queries for the site here comes two other monitors with you know with things so it's really, you know, it's really helped me uh, not only in the management, but even the, uh, the development. So, you know, again, um, back to the sacrifice part, clinical research has allowed me to travel the world. Um, you know, one of the uh, crowning moments for me was I got an opportunity to actually work for uh, an oncology-based company in Munich, Germany. You know, so I was actually in Munich and um, it was, you know, it was a, it was a great opportunity because as you probably know better than most, when you have global studies and you see like EC, you're like, oh, okay, that's the ethics committee. But when you're actually in Europe and you realize that each country kind of has its own like FDA, if you will, 
it becomes really fascinating. And also the, the approach to the science is, is a little bit different. So clinical research has blessed me in, in so many ways. And um, for me, I always feel it's important to give back. And so through Black Pharma, I was able you know, to, to really to do that because again, they're a UK based organization, but um, Jennifer and the team there, they had enough trust in me to say, hey, we actually have some people in the US that could use you know, your experience. And so that's how you know, Alexandra and the other person, that's how we got connected. And from day one, I highly recommended that they listen to you and they actually do, actually, they do follow you, they do listen and things like that. And as a matter of fact, um, I'm going to purchase two of your books for them, you know, because I, I think one thing about clinical research is I don't think that there's one way to get in, but I think when you do get in, it's important that you 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 have you you have an avenue because as you probably know again, I mean, look at how you ascended, right? I mean, clinical research, you can do so many things now versus when I started in 2004. You know? Yeah. And the opportunities are there. By the way, this serendipity today, all right? I woke up today. We chose, we both chose serendipity. I actually have to go to UPS store and send two books to two people. So just send me their addresses. I'll save you the trip. I'll say this is from Damien and I'll send it to them. I, I'll just put two more in there. I got oh. a box. I got a box full of books. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. I, I will definitely, you know, I will definitely do that. And, you know, and I think that this is one thing that, you know, I don't know, maybe this is a question for you. Like, do you feel that we network well in industry? Because I mean, I know industry is almost incestuous. It's not as big as people assume. <laughs> do you think that, that, you know, that we network well enough to where if you recognize a, a you know a diamond in the rough that that there's enough networking happening to where people will will be willing like are there more dance affairs in the world in our industry or do you find it that it's 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 hit or miss it's hit or miss but like if you compare it to something that a lot of people i guess can understand like real estate right realtors are very competitive with one another but they try to network when it's beneficial to them. I think in our industry, there's less of that. I think at the site level, you do see like some, hey, I don't want to necessarily network with my competitor. But from the employee level, I do think there's a huge opportunity there for networking. And we're starting to see it. You know, we're starting to see it with Latinos in clinical research, with the Black women in clinical research. There's a lot of groups out there fostering networking Socra and acrp do it to some extent but um we could do a lot more because there are sites there are vendors there are cro's there are sponsors and then there are people that want to work in these levels it's fragmented the networking's fragmented unlike I let's say real estate where yeah you may have mortgage lenders and agents but it's not like they're not networking with each other. So it's it's a little less fragmented in that sense because everyone's after the same end user, which is the customer. In our case, we're not all after the same people. Like as sites, we're after sponsors and patients. But as a CRA, you're just after your next gig or your next contract. 
or as a vendor, you're after CROs to get your product in front of them. So we're all after different things. And that's why I think there is opportunity for networking. We've only scratched the surface because there's not really any cohesive efforts other than Latinos in clinical research, Black Pharma, Black women in clinical research. You're starting to see a little bit more of that, but far from ideal. I see. And so, you know, for you, you know, um, as someone who is not only a site owner, but also, you know, again, you know, an opportunity generator in our industry, you know, what are, what are your thoughts on, you know, on, you know, the diversity and inclusion concept? Because <laughs> I, I think it's, a, I think it's, yeah, me, it's, a, it's a struggle. I, and, and I say that because in my opinion, I do believe that it is the most overused phrase in our industry. I, I think that um, that organizations have to be very, very careful because it can become, you know, another way to have a professional quota, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I, I also think though that that there is underrepresentation and absolutely I, I you know I I've been in companies where uh, I know for a fact you know I checked every box African-American male veteran you know um, but you know there I've been in other companies where the diversity and inclusion it was present enough to where they didn't have to broadcast it exactly and it wasn't something that you know look you know you know latinos black brown people you know we weren't this shiny object to say look you know this is why we're diverse and inclusive you know and so you know again you know being someone who has a fast track program and you know you write books and you have a podcast like and somebody who's been you know in this industry for you know over 20 years like you know, what are your thoughts on that? And what can, do you think can be done to, you know, to, you know, improve um, the, the uh, underrepresentation? It's huge underrepresentation. So it's a huge issue. Even the FDA acknowledges it. Yep which I mean, they're mandating more minorities be represented in the studies before they approve a particular drug, because we don't, I mean, as dangerous, forget about DENI and all these idealistic um, phrases we throw around, like people can actually die or get very sick if they're taking an approved drug that hasn't been tested on their background. (laughs) Like it's just common sense. So I think, it's it's everybody can see the obvious need for for diversity at at the at least at the study participant level but then it gets tricky because okay well how do we foster more minority recruitment in studies well one strategy which i actually believe in is sites should hire more minorities because i mean here's here's a news flash like patients are more comfortable around people that are from their same background and then it trickles up into, okay, what about CRAs? And I actually think CROs have done a great job as far as women in, in positions of CRAs. You're, you're, a, you're a male 
right? Like as a male CRA, even as a male coordinator, we're minorities. Like it's female, it's a female dominated industry. So our industry was ahead in that regard. Maybe it has something to do with the nursing background. Who knows? When it comes to minorities, though, we've started to see lately an increase in hiring. But where it matters, Damien, where it matters at the C-suite level, we all know not much has changed. Matter of fact, I saw somebody on Twitter yesterday, a black woman, I follow, immediate follow. I'm, I want to get her on. She's in pharma. JPM is having its annual conference this week in San Francisco. Yep. Biggest conference of the year for pharma. It's where biotechs go to get funding. It's where biotechs go to sell their company to Pfizer or another big pharma. It's yep. probably where Shire hooked up the deal for Takeda to buy them, right? She said <laughs> she didn't see anyone in sight that looked like her. <laughs> anyone in sight. These are the conferences that matter. Nothing against Sokra and ACRP. But these are the workers at those conferences. And we're talking about decision makers. At the executive levels, we haven't seen the change yet. And I think real equity in DEI, the E is equity, is ownership. So until we start seeing more minorities in positions of actual ownership, this is why I love, I'm an advocate for small business. It's the best way to further your career, regardless of your background. That's true equity. So yeah. I'm very passionate about that. I can do an hour on this. Yeah, but <laughs> me too. I, you know, well, for me, I think that too, when we talk DEI, I think that we also have to realize that there's two more, you know, components of it, which one is acceptance and belonging. And I think that, you know, one of the points that you bring up also is like, I think that one of the challenges with, with minority recruitment, and even I would go as far as to say, you know, hiring diverse candidates is the fact that, I think it's a bigger picture like in this country where we tend to be dismissive of certain things because they don't necessarily apply to us. So for example, people will look at things like the Tuskegee experiment and they'll say, well, that happened in the seventies. And it's like, well, <laughs> I was born in 76, you know, so, you know, or, that happened in your lifetime, man. Yeah. You know, I have, <laughs> I have relatives, you know, that, you know, were born before then. And I just think that, uh, I think that access, and again, this is why I feel that, you know, that you are really important to, you know, clinical research is because through you, you allow people through your podcast, through your books, you know, through LinkedIn to have the ability to pivot and pivot in a way where the fear of clinical research lessens, because I think that that's also mm -hmm. a big I mean, you know, one of the challenges, you know, in minorities as well as, you know, is we don't like to go to the doctors, you know, and it's because, you know, if you go to the doctors, yeah. you're going to find something. So I think that I, I listen, I know people who uh, who are in programs designed for this, but they're the only one that looks like me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It's perception, and, though. Perception is a real thing. Tuskegee was not a myth. And we don't talk about it enough, I don't think, because it has ramifications. Like you said, that was the 70s, right? Um, you're born. 
when that came out, it was the seventies. It started earlier, but people right. tend to to brush it away, like, oh no, that was such a long time ago. they they're those people's grandkids, that generation's grandkids, are adults now. They're st- potential study participants. They don't want to do studies because of real things like this that happened, where it's not a conspiracy theory. Like this actually happened. Their 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 hesitancy to join studies is hundred percent correct and justifiable. Like this actually happened. You 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 also compare that to Latinos. So like in Mexico, here in the U.S., like we're not getting into the vaccine, but there's a lot of hesitancy around the vaccine. That's another hour long podcast. Yeah. There's this trust in a sense of corporations in Mexico. They're not really pushing the vaccine much like the media. You're not hearing it. So people there want to get it. They think that the government's trying to prevent them from getting it. It's all about perception. So this stuff is absolutely correct. All this DE&I stuff boils down to perception. And it's I mean, that's that that's the reality of where we are in 2023. Yeah. And, you you know, and you speak about, you know, Mexico, I mean, when you, you know, when you're taking, you know, whether it's your, um, your city training or your ICHGCP training, you know, there's a reason why you learn about the Belmont report and the Nuremberg codes and even, mm-hmm. you know, other things that really don't get talked about, like the Willowbrook study, <laughs> you know, and so these things, you know, they become, you know, they become generationally affixed to our profession. And I think that one thing that, uh, you know, for me, I think that one of the resolutions is to really emphasize community engagement, you know, have have platforms like yourself where, um, you know, if people want to learn more about clinical research, you know, have a liaison go out to, you know, the respective clinics in the communities where they're underserved and, you know, just literally answer any questions that people may have. Because again, I think perception is is a huge part of it. I think access is also another part of it because I mean, I'm sure, you know, you know, I think your, your site is located in Mesa, right? So yeah, Yuma, Yuma, Arizona is super underserved, you know, and so I'm sure, you know, sometimes patients may drive three or four hours or they may not, you know, they may not know about center watch or they may not know about, (laughs) you know, these uh, websites that can really be uh, informative with respect to, uh, you know, clinical trials. And so I, one of the, one of the goals, what I would love to do is to really start something like that, where we, we develop a network of community engagement people who, who don't have a corporate feel, you know, because I think that's another part of it, but they, you know, we become beacons to, the benefits of clinical research and, you know, and don't shy away. Like one of the things when I was in Germany, um, my boss, cause I wanted to know, my boss had told me for a long time, you know, Germans were ashamed of their history for obvious reasons, but it's their history, they have to own it. And so what they did was they managed it in a way where it became a teachable moment. And so I think that uh, while that may also slide into some political things, which, you know, I'm, 
<laughs> I, I think that that's the one way that, that we help uh, increase minority recruitment in, you know, in studies, as well as to your point, you know, having the proper representation at all levels, whether it's the CRO, the site, you know, every level. On. Yeah, every level. Yeah. And I think I'm hoping, but there's plenty of people that are not relying on hope. They're making it happen. You being one of them. I'm hoping that eventually it will trickle up into the C-suite. You know, I think we will. I think meritocracy is still foundational to this country. And I think if we, like you said, give it access and opportunities to enough people, eventually we will get the outcomes um, that we're hoping for. But, you know, it's going to take a generation to see if that actually pans out or not. Yeah. And so, you know, as someone who has really dedicated, you know, their, their life to their profession, like what's next for you? Uh, <laughs> this is my last site, man. Um, this is my last site for sure. I've been running sites since 2005 on accident, started on accident. Um, it's definitely my last one. It's also my biggest opportunity because it's the first time I've been in an underserved area. Prior to this, I've been in SoCal. So LA, Orange County, Inland Empire. Those are not really underserved. Like there's plenty of sites out there. If mine don't make it, it doesn't matter. This one, if we don't make it, there's no other research here. I mean, you have the hospital that's like the monopoly in the town and they do oncology trials. So I moved out here, five-year plan, build something big, build something worthwhile, build something that provides value to the community and then either sell it or have someone run it and move back probably San Diego, but who knows, could be, could be anywhere. And I really want to focus on biotech next. I'm, I'm really starting to get into the science of these kind of things. Um, and I think that's the next stage. If you could get past the funding and the startup, getting the biotechs to not just choose what therapeutic areas to focus on, because that's for the scientists, but getting the biotechs to figure out early before they fail the process, the clinical research process and, and, and improving their chances of succeeding, whether that's through content marketing to get patients in the studies. Do you know how much money these biotechs waste on CROs because they like, don't know what they're it's doing? In the billions, right? Yes, it makes or breaks not just the biotechs and the founders, but the investors who put their money in some of these penny stocks. So like maybe one out of 20 succeed, but what happens to the other 19? I think that could be reduced. I think those outcomes can be halved, actually. I think maybe maybe 10 out of those 20 can actually have moderate success, take the science out of it, just due to clinical trial enrollment, vendor procurement, how to monitor their studies more efficiently using tools like remote monitoring that we discussed, right? Mm -hmm. And then also raising awareness on the investor side because they're ignoring retail investors. And I think retail investors are really kind of what makes or breaks some of these stocks. We saw a lot in 2020 with GameStop and some of these other stocks. Yeah, Bed Bath & Beyond, right? Yeah. <laughs> Bed Bath & Look at this. I mean, AMC, retail investors, you know, we all focus on institutional investors. Those are the people at JP Morgan. But bringing 
biotech to the retail investors. That's my next, it's kind of amb- um, ambiguous right now, like my plans, but I can't really articulate it well. But I think kind of what I'm trying to do with clinical research to bring that to biotech space. That's my next my next decade, probably 2030 and beyond. Nice. Hopefully, yeah. hopefully. I mean, well, you know, the, the other part too is I, I think that um, when you look at the CRO culture, I definitely think that um, it's, it's interesting because before, you know, there used to be, you know, a, a handful, but now there's so many CROs and, and some CROs are specialized. And I think that what happens from time to time, right, is that, you know, you use kind of the, the homegrown CRA or CRA, I'm sorry, um, CRO that is niche in phase one. And then, you know, mm-hmm. once you have your information, you go to phase two, then you go for the heavy hitters. And I think that that gap is sometimes where the quality is affected, you know? Yes. Uh, and, I, and I think that, um, I mean, you could make the argument too, you know, that some CROs, you know, they have the reputation of becoming mills, right? You know, where uh, it becomes, uh, you know, quantity over quality and, um, you know, so I, I think to your point, I think proper CRO utilization is, a, again, it's another avenue that. Um, or, or with these techs, I mean, Viva right here, okay, these tech companies empowering sites and patients if they actually do if they actually pull off what their objectives are which is to make life easier for sites and make life easier for patients at the same time the real question is do we still need CROs and I think that's where if you talk to a lot of these biotech CEOs especially the early stage ones where they may go to CRO XYZ the big one which are also publicly traded, they're not really given priority because 19 out of 20 of them are not going to be in business in five years. So why would you care? So this is like a common theme, I think, can use some disruption. So, you know, to that point, right, and I'm sure you know this as well, is like, you know, the relationship between sponsor and CRO is kind of like, I need you or I want you but I don't need you, you know, yeah. you see it all the time, right? Like where, because I mean, listen, I don't know the percentages, but I would love to know how many CROs are still using or sponsors rather are using an FSP model because I've seen, I've seen a lot of stuff on biospace where like, I think it was like, you know, like Nectar and BMS, like, you know, they ceased, you know, their program and, you know, and all of these, mergers have ceased and it's interesting because you know i've been in companies where you know as a consultant where it's like well we're having a shift you know we want to bring you know things in-house you know we don't want to deal with the you know we don't want to deal with the you know with the consultants we'd rather just you know develop in-house cras and then you get to these other scenarios where they want contractors and they don't want W-2s because like you said, you know, their business plan is probably three years at best. You at know? best. I mean, we're about to enter that phase now. 
yep. of these biotechs are either going to go out of business or get bought out for pennies on the dollar by big pharma. Big pharma is going to come out of this recession. We're about to be in a recession, stronger, bigger than ever. But I think by 2030, it's going to be a next cycle, you know, with genomics, wearable, all this stuff's going to come out. Um, MABs, mRNA, all right. Yeah. I mean, feel how you want about it. There's potential there. So I think that's going to be the next generation where they're going to really think twice. Like, do I need a CRO? Can I do this in-house? And this is why I think we actually need more generalists in this space who understand how the industry functions on a high level. Because what, I mean, these, 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 any study needs patients. They need PIs that know what they're doing, right? They need basic things like EDC, biostats, um, and and what what typically derails these trials is lack of patient accrual because whether the science works or doesn't work you, you're going to find out sooner rather than later if you have good patient accrual which means saving a million dollars a day what the average clinical trial costs so then would you so then would you suggest you know how a lot of times you know I always tell people that listen having experience is one thing, you know, because a lot of people will say, I want to have 20 years at IQB. And it's like, well, <laughs> the data will dictate that, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so, you know, do you think things like having sooner interim analyses or having sooner, you know, um, data safety reviews, you know, that those things will help trim or yeah. be proactive in, in minimizing loss? Yes. Failing faster. I mean, every biotech take the market cap that they have. If the average clinical trial costs, and this was before COVID, but the average clinical trial costs a million dollars a day. Yep. All right. If that's delayed due to patient recruitment or lack of data being entered in a timely manner, or lack of review, that's a million bucks a day. It adds up. They have other things in the pipeline they want to do but they don't want to piss off their investors by doing everything at once and then running out of money and ending up with nothing. So the faster they can fail, the sooner they can start their next thing. There's no shortage of brilliant scientists at these companies. Problem is these scientists don't know the first thing about site procurement, how to speak to a patient, how to get coordinators up to speed, how to show PIs that yes, if they start a site on their real world patients that they could actually be financially viable you need somebody or some new group that hasn't been formed yet like a new version of a cro to connect all these stakeholders i see so my last question is i know um you know our industry is so exciting and so what's your take on psychedelic research because it just seems like <laughs> it's here it's here it's a lot harder to do than you think so only a few only a few type of sites are actually positioned to do it properly um there's several specialized CROs that do this i've actually just talked to one a few months back because we have a psychiatrist in yuma but he's the traditional office you come in there's nothing nice about the office it's just a medical office what they want for these psychedelics is almost like a resort because they don't want the patients to freak out when they're in a trip and say, oh, I'm in a doctor's office. 
you know here's like a waiting room they want them to be like in a room like a spa where it's like an experience and when they come out of when they come back to reality from wherever they went right that they're not freaking out like oh, okay now i'm like i'm in a relaxed place not to mention the dea license and all that other stuff you need to so it's a lot harder to pull off at the site level but there are sites that are positioning themselves there's plenty of medical spas and there's plenty of doctors who have medical spas in addition to their private practices even here in yuma so you can problem is it is still clinical research at the end of the day so you gotta show them that the money is worth it the roi of converting your office into a medical spa is there to do studies because we're still early in 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 the psychedelic research space yeah i mean i i think it's i think it's interesting because i think that you know just some of the you know preliminary data out there i mean it could be a game changer especially you know against ssris that kind of i mean if you know anything about cns you know there really isn't uh you know it's pretty much more of a cocktail that people get put on and it's kind of Mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, uh, a drug for a drug, if you will. So, you know, for Valium, you know, you may end up getting cogentin and, you know, and those type of things. So I think it'll be, it'll be interesting to see not so much the clinical trials, but how it would be marketed, because I think that it would want to avoid the cannabis thing, you know, where, you know, it becomes, you know, instead of, it being for medicinal purposes. And I'm not saying that it's not, but I mean, look, I live in Compton. I can go to like 50, you know, men made cannabis places and, you know, and get something. So I think that it'll be interesting to see the- the You can get it delivered to you before this interview's over. (laughs) (laughs) Right, you know, and I I think too that, um, you know, to your point about, about the resort field, I think that, one thing about that is probably because, you know, you, you, you don't want the trigger, right? I mean, you know what I mean? So if somebody mm-hmm. is in a, you know, in an environment where the Grateful Dead is playing or, or Jamiroquai or Coombrangan or something like that. And, you know, the room is like earth tones and things like that. I think it does provide a, a certain level of calm and things like that. So safe think, landing. Yeah. And I think, so I think it will be interesting to see if, if that model ends up being like the model for CNS as a whole. Depends. I mean, the ketamine stuff that they were started working on since 2015 and you combine that with Alzheimer's and schizophrenia, they still don't have any answers for Alzheimer's or schizophrenia. Um, I think wearables actually playing a big role into that, like EEGs. I think we're going to see a revolution of, EEGs you can take home and you can get some data, which if you're given enough data, run through an algorithm, you can tell which which medication has a better likelihood of working on which patient because we're all different. I think that's going to start happening this decade, actually. Um, we actually have a study that's very similar to what I just described uh, starting soon. So I think that stuff's already happening. And I think we're going to have more customized solutions for psychiatric patients nice nice and so you know listen um i know we have what about six minutes left right so um 
we're gonna have to do part two and part three yeah yeah i mean i you know because i i have so many questions and, and like you know like we we started this podcast off this was kind of a you know a, a last minute thing but uh, again yeah. i am so grateful you know for this opportunity because you know oftentimes when we're doing work we're looking at it as something that we love to do and we look at it as a way of like you know to you know it's our joy right and i i don't know and maybe you do know like your impact <laughs> you know what i mean i mean just by the mere fact that you know that that you started you know a cra fast track academy um and you know and there's people and i've seen you know people you know their post you know I just got a great job as a, you know, as a CRA or, I'm, you know, I got a great job as a study coordinator. That's, I, I would love to learn more about how to, to do that. I mean, I have mentees and there's people that, you know, that I've worked with along the way and we share information and things like that, but like, and it's not so much about having like the, the platform, but it's really, I, I think that this is vital to our industry, because again, I'm sure you know as well, like a lot of times there are fantastic sites, right? But it's just that how they get their foot in a clinical research door is always the biggest obstacle. And so I think that what you're doing, and like I said, even, you know, uh, you know, Dr. Hazen, you know. Uh, Love her. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, listen, I mean, she remembered me from a decade ago and was like, yeah, you know, let's, you know, and Let's she was right about a lot of stuff where yes, even me in 2020, I'm super open-minded and anti-establishment. She was telling me some stuff. I was like, no, you sound like you're crazy. If I didn't know you, Dr. Azen, I would think you're crazy. And turns out 2023, she's right about most of it. Yeah. And, and like I said, you know, we, we wrote, you know, some, you know, I helped her write a couple protocols and, um, and, you know, like you said, you know, it's one of those things like that's what like like brilliant you know that's what that is and and she was using science you know what i mean she wasn't using like the media she wasn't using you know conspiracy so theories. what she did what she did if you scale it up to the size of a biotech a startup biotech is what i think you can scale up and create a platform for startup biotechs to emulate She's like the like the the root the rudimentary model. That's my plan for 2030 and beyond. Nice. Yeah, I told her she is like the Yoda of our industry. Oh, no, she, she is. You know, she, you know what I mean? I mean, again, and listen, there were a couple of times where uh, she, you know, would post things on social media and you know, people people had some very strong stuff to say. I saw, I saw yeah. all of them. I may not have commented, but I, I read them. Yeah. And, you know, I liked a couple of her posts and all of a sudden I was getting these direct messages like, you know, how could you like that? You know, like when we stop questioning, first of all, nobody knows anything still, right. Still MRNA is a potential platform game changer. We don't know much about it yet, even though, what, half the world has been vaccinated at least once with it. But this is yeah. the rudimentary form, like, and you could debate how it was executed and all that, but nobody knows is the answer. But if we stop questioning because we assume, okay, no, only these people have the answers, only these people should be listened to, 
we're back to Tuskegee again. Like, it's the same mentality that got us into this mess to begin with. And I think to that point is, you know, what she did is she was brilliant in removing opinion out of it and made everything literally indefensible. I mean, everything was solely about the science. And I think to your point, if more people looked at it that way versus, well, this doesn't make sense because there's not a political angle on it. Her stuff was solely about the science and solely on, you know, a lot of her, you know, I mean, you know, people don't realize it. She was what, like the first, like female MD and GI or something like that, like yep. graduate from, like UF and stuff like that. Yep. So, I mean, so <laughs> she wasn't like some, you know, uh, like mega preacher or something like that that just, you know, just had this wild theory. I mean, she has, her and her sister, you know, they've dedicated their lives, you know. Yeah. So and you could easily replace the word political with forced compliance for maximizing profits. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I mean, and like I said, trust me, I mean, there was a lot of stuff when she was writing those protocols in general. I mean, she was like literally using her own money, you know, for a lot I of know. I know. <laughs> we both worked with her yeah. without realizing we're working together. Yeah. That's why when Alexandra wrote that post, I was like, I know this guy's name. I need to click and see who he is. <laughs> and then I went to message you and I saw we already had threads going. I'm like, oh, shoot. Yeah. I've been talking to Damien. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like I said, I think 2000, I think maybe it might have been like 2011, 2012, I think maybe. You, God, you know, it goes you, back. You were like, man, you have like a ton of oncology experience. Like, let me look at this because there's no way you shouldn't be, you know, not without a job, you know, so on and so forth. So, yeah. you know, I've always been, you know, a fan. And this was, like I said, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, um, I feel like I've made it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, no. I mean, I'm lucky to get the chance to interview you. And honestly, we didn't even scratch the surface of your career. Yeah. So I want to do that next because there's a lot to unpack from your career. Like you said, the sacrifice, the things you've learned, the advice you can give to others. And we can integrate that to some of the higher ideals, like getting more people into the industry and giving more people the at bats that they need. Yeah. Yeah. And so I know we're right at 11 o'clock. And so thank listen, you, Dave, her, thank you. And, um, you know, again, anyone, um, you know, who's watching this podcast, please follow my guy. He's a, he's a good, not only is he excellent in our profession, but he's just a good guy to know. So, you know, um, you know, again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for taking time also to speak to my mentees as well, because I know that you've been, Man. you've been chopping it up with them as well. So Thank you, Damien. Links to Damien's LinkedIn underneath the profile. Everybody like, subscribe, comment, share, go follow. Thank you again, Damien. We'll do part two soon. Bye-bye. Sure. All righty. Take care.